Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast to talk about a new book that they've co-written is um, Richard E. Turley and Barbara Jones-Brown. Welcome to the podcast, you two. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. It's really an honor to join you on this podcast. Um, listeners, I I think Mountain Meadows Massacre is a really important topic in our faith, and I'll just tell you what I know about it, and I don't know too much about it. I'm in my 60s, and this story has been around me my whole life. And I knew it was a tragedy that happened, I now learned, 1857. I've always been a little foggy on who was at fault. I knew a Latter-day Saint um, was executed for his role. I've never quite understood Brigham Young's role. I've never quite understood um, the Paiute Indians' role. I recognize that Elder Eyring issued an apology in 27, and there was a memorial connect, connected. So I kind of the foggy details I'm aware. I don't know the political context for what happened and why it happened. And maybe you're like me, maybe you know less or more, but this is a chance to really learn about the Mountain Meadows Massacre from two what I would call brilliant LDS historians that have spent... Um, decades on LDS history and understanding the exactly what happened at the Meadows, Mountain Meadows Massacre. Um, so the name of the book that we're going to talk about is Mountain Meadow Massacre and its Aftermath. And the co-authors, as I mentioned, are Richard E. Turley, we'll call him Rick in this podcast, and Barbara Jones-Brown, two people that I deeply admire and respect. Is that okay for just an overview of the podcast? Sounds sure. great to me. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, Barbara, what, uh, in case some people don't know you well, and I don't know either of you really well, um, will you just take a minute before we get into the topic and just introduce yourself? I know, I think you both have graduate degrees and have, um, have careers, but will you introduce a little bit about your education, your station in life, what you do professionally in any service, anything you want to tell our listeners about you? You're sure. first, Barbara, from Park City, Utah. Sure. So um, I actually grew up all over the West. Uh, I didn't move to Utah until I was uh, almost an adult, um, but I've had an experience of li li living outside of Utah. And actually, most of my friends growing up were non not Latter-day Saint. Um, so I think that kind of taught me how to see everything from various viewpoints. So I'm grateful for that experience. I went to Brigham Young University, where I majored in journalism and minored in English. From the time I was in an elementary school, I knew I wanted to be a writer. Cool. And so that's why I majored in both. Um, I, years later, went on to get a master's degree in history, and we may talk about that a little bit later, but in American history. And uh, I worked in the church history department when Rick Turley hired me years ago to edit volume one of this series that we're talking about today, which was called Massacre at Mountain Meadows. He hired me in 2005. Um, and then, of course, we went on to write the sequel together of this book, which has just come out called Vengeance is Mine, which you've mentioned. Um, my husband and I are the parents of five children. And we just had our first grandbaby um, a year and a half ago with a second on the way. So that's kind of our family story. Thank you, Barbara. Rick? My genealogy is somewhat unusual in that my father's mother comes from Cedar City, Utah. 
which was the hub of where the planning occurred for the Mount Meadows Massacre and the base for where many people uh, left to go to the Mount Meadows to commit this, this horrible atrocity. My mother's father, on the other hand, is from northwest Arkansas which is the ground zero for where the victims of the massacre came from. I have no direct ancestors who were either participants in or victims of the massacre, but because of my family connections to these two geographical regions, I have shirt-tailed cousin relationships to many of the perpetrators of the massacre and to at least 22 victims of the massacre. I was born in Fort Worth, Texas, and grew up in Texas, Utah, Iowa, Washington. And as a child, I I lived in both of these culture regions. Um, we would go down to Arkansas when I was a child. We would go to, um, you know, we live in Utah when I was a child. And I came to know and understand the people from, from both of those regions. When I became 15, I began my deep dive into church history People who have a, a more than average interest in this subject generally have a period of time in which they sort of get interested to the point where they really dive more deeply. And I, I began diving deeply at age 15. At age 16, I we moved to Utah from Washington State. Utah had release time seminary. I became the district seminary bowl champion. And then my senior year of high school, I was made the academic vice president of the Salt Lake Valley North Seminary District Council, which meant that I was responsible for writing and judging, or writing the questions for and judging the competitions in Seminary Bowl for 15 schools in the Salt Lake Valley during a church history year. And so my deep dive got even deeper and deeper, and I just became enamored of church history. And of course, in all that deep diving in high school, I ran into the Mount Meadows Massacre. It was one of the topics that I that I studied. On my mission, I think, or thereabouts, was when I first read Juanita Brooks's uh, 1950 book that was so uh, path-breaking. Um, I went to BYU, graduated with a degree in English. At that time, I didn't think that going into history would be a very good occupation because at that period of time it was hard for people to get jobs. And so I went into law, graduated with a law degree and planned to work in my law office in downtown Salt Lake City and spend my free time researching church history. Within a year of my graduation, I had the opportunity to move over to the church history department. I became the managing director of that department in January of 1986. And at that time, not long after I got there, the descendants of the perpetrators and the descendants of the victims had begun conversations after you know, more than a century of, of being apart, essentially. And those conversations needed some guidance by other parties. The, the church owns some property, two and a half acres down at the Mount Meadows, where a 1932 monument had been built. National Forest Service owned some land down there, as did the state of Utah. So these groups, the descendants of the victims, the perpetrators, the church, the federal government and the state government got together. And in 1990, we constructed a monument on what's called Dan Seal Hill that was deliberately designed as a Vietnam War Memorial style monument with all of the names on it. And yet that 1932 monument in the valley was deteriorating. And President Gordon B. Hinckley, who had a deep and abiding interest 
interest in this subject. He called a meeting in the North Boardroom of the Church Administration Building. I was there as were relatives of the victims, and he proposed that the church design and pay for a new monument to replace the 1932 monument that had deteriorated, and that was dedicated in 1999. And because of the in my involvement in all of this, and in, in the early 1990s, I wrote my first article about the Mount Meadows Massacre, which was published in the Encyclopedia of Mormonism, co-authored with Ron Esplin. So I've been writing about this subject for more than 30 years. So in the late 90s, early 2000s, I thought, you know, it's time. Latter-day Saints for, for many decades had tried to, first of all, deny that the massacre occurred, and then when it was impossible to deny it, they tried to condone the massacre, to excuse it, to justify it, to vilify the victims. And then when that became untenable, uh, they, they, they turned the topic into a taboo subject that wasn't to be discussed among in polite society. And it, it just, in many places, it just wasn't being dealt with really, really straightforwardly and honestly. And so... I got together with a couple of colleagues, Ronald W. Walker and Glenn M. Leonard. Glenn was the director at that time of the, what's now called the Church History Museum. Ron Walker had been a history professor at BYU. And we decided to write a book that was published uh, in 2008 called Massacre at Mount Meadows. Along the way, uh, Barbara Jones Brown became one of our colleagues and played a, a really significant role in, in that first volume in helping it come about. When we began to tell the story, we hoped to tell the whole story within the covers of a single volume. But that was simply impossible. We, we were blessed in that we had strong support from the leaders of the church. There's a New Testament scripture about making sure that you count the cost before you build a tower. So before launching into this book, I went to senior church leaders and I asked them, or three things, essentially. One, I said, we want access to all items about the massacre, including items that Juanita Brooks was unable to get. Two, we wanted to let the chips fall where they may and just be completely honest and forthright about it. And three, we wanted to retain editorial control, and they, they granted all of those. So that's how uh, that project started. Barbara, you want to say more about how you got in there? So I just was going to share my story starting with in 1990. Um, so Rick, when you were talking about the um, the creation of this monument, the Stan Hill Stansill Hill Monument in 1990, that's coincidentally the first time I ever heard about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Uh, my parents were living in Arizona at the time. I was a return missionary. I was a seminary graduate, a BYU graduate, and had served a mission. And I was home one day, I was 22 in 1990, and uh, my father was really into Mormon history and Western Americana. So he had all kinds of historical items framed and hanging on the walls of our family room. And I had often seen this, it looked like just an old newspaper spread or something, a depiction, uh, a Western scene. And for the first time after my mission, I was just looking at it closely one day. And it was of some men carrying guns, walking next to other men without guns and some wagons. And then I looked closely and then there were some stereotypical um, depictions of Plains Indians 
it, hiding in the corner of this. And I thought, what, what is this? And then at the bottom, it said Mountain Meadows. And it was an 1877 Harper's Weekly fold-out newspaper spread that dad had taken in frames. And I said, dad, what's, what's the Mountain Meadows? And he says, well, honey, in 1857, a group of Mormon militiamen uh, wiped out a bunch of California-bound emigrants. And it felt like I had been punched in the stomach. Wow. I was so shocked. And I, because all I had ever heard were just the wonderful stories about our, you know, our Mormon pioneer ancestors and, and, and the things that they did and just, just only good things, the good things. Um, and I said, dad, you're kidding me. How, why would they do this? And he said, I don't know, honey. They just, um, we don't really, we don't know. Kind of what you were saying, Richard, like, we don't know. Um, he says, that, you know, rumors are that they had poisoned a spring and supposedly had the gun that killed Joseph Smith. And I remember saying, so? <laughs> Why, you know, and he says, we just don't know. And so that was just something that I always kept in the back of my head since I was 22. But I just resolved that someday I would, I wanted to know what had happened. Um, so later I was doing some freelance journalism articles and uh, I was going down to a Mormon history association conference in Provo. And my husband, who was a journalist for the desert news, he said, Hey, why are you down there? There's some authors down there who are presenting their research on a book they're writing about the mountain meadows massacre, Rick Turley, Ron Walker and Glenn Leonard. He said, why don't you see if you could maybe get an, in, you know, go to their session, see if you can get an interview with any of them and write up a freelance article on their book for the Deseret News. I said, great. So I went down to the conference. I went in their session. It was, it was quite lively to put it mildly. It was just jam packed with people. And I thought, wow, people are just as interested in, as I am in learning what, what's the story here. Um, I was really nervous and intimidated, but I reached out to Rick Turley and asked if I could interview him. He was so kind and friendly. Um, I also was able to get an interview with Ron Walker. I interviewed them about their book and Rick told me all about what they were doing. Um, I published the story in the Deseret News and that was my next encounter with Mountain Meadows. So I learned a little bit more just by listening to their presentation and then interviewing them and writing the story. Several years later, um, I had uh, I had I'd been working full time for the Ensign Magazine as an editor, and I stopped working there when I had my uh, daughter, my first daughter. Um, but I left a, a resume with Elder Marlon K. Jensen, who was the church historian and recorder at the time. I knew uh, Marlon, I, I call him that because I've known him for years. He and my dad were roommates at BYU. Wow. Um, and I just left him a resume and said, hey, if you ever need a freelance editor, something I can do from home, I'm really starting to get interested, more interested in church history. Um, you know, let me know. He gave me a freelance project editing a family history manual. I did that. And then I didn't hear anything more for months. And I thought, well, I'm never going to hear from the department. So I kind of just forgot about it. Then one day, uh, I got a call from 
Richard E. Turley Jr., <laughs> who was the managing director of the church history department at the time. And he said, I have your resume, and I wonder if you'd like to come in for an interview to work with me in the church history department. And um, we just found out I was pregnant with my second baby. Uh, my other daughter was three at that time. So I said, well, would it be freelance? Would it be part-time? Would it be full-time? And he said, it's a full-time position. And in my head, I thought, this makes no sense right now at this point in my life. So in my head, I was thinking no. And I said, okay, well, uh, what would what would you want me to do? And he said, I want you to edit my book on the mountain's <laughs> massacre. And I said, I'll be right there. <laughs> wow. So um, I still wasn't sure if this was the right thing, but it never hurts to go in for an interview. I interviewed with Rick. And during that interview, it was an incredibly emotional experience for me inside. I was keeping it all inside, but I, it didn't make any sense, but I knew I was supposed to take this job. It felt right. Um, so another funny story is that I, when I accepted the offer from Rick, I said, you know, I'm not required to tell you this, but I want to tell you that I am, um, I have a baby on the way in about eight months. And he said, well, when's your baby due? And I said, May. And he said, well, that's okay. We'll have this book finished by April. Well, the book was published when that baby was two. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyways, I'll take, I'll let Rick take it from there. Now we're, Rick and I are just going to kind of go back and forth sharing our stories with our encounter with the massacre. I love telling the backstory and it's good for younger Latter-day Saints to sort of hear Barbara, I love you kind of talking about your journey and how you are doing what you're doing then with this book and now with this book. And that kind of came about gradually. I think that's a good story. And same with you, Rick. So yeah, keep sharing. I, I'd love, and I think you'll do this, just if anybody's not familiar with the Mountain Meadows Massacre, just, you know, give us the fa the background facts and then go deeper into the what you know so well. Well, let me just uh, mention about the time that Barbara came aboard and we were editing the chapters for the book, it became apparent that we would never be able to finish it at the scope that we had originally laid out. Originally, we were going to have the book go from the very beginning, explain the history of the church leading up to 1857, the history of the emigrants to 57, their trip through Utah and the massacre, the aftermath of the massacre, the cover-up, investigations, the trials and execution of John D. Lee, and then events from that period to the present. By the time uh, Barbara came aboard and we were working through the chapters that we'd already prepared, a couple of things were clear. Number one, it was clear that we had bitten off more than we could chew. And my co-authors were getting very tired. This is a subject that takes the hmm. breath away from you. It just sucks your life out. And they were beginning to feel the, the effects of that, having worked on it for several years. We had also been blessed because of the church support to build teams of people who did research in 31 of the 50 U.S. states and the District of Columbia. We ended up with a massive amount of information about the massacre, and there was no way that this abundance of riches could be distilled into a single volume. So we made a decision at that point to split the project in half and to do two books. First one came out in 2008, Massacre at Mountain Meadows. At that time, neither Ron Walker nor Glenn Leonard felt that they wanted to go on with the second volume. Uh, Ron uh, 
sadly uh, got cancer and passed away. Uh, Glenn had another project that he wanted to get to. And so Barbara and I continued the project. And Rick, can I just jump in here? Real sure. Quick? Um, so after the the first book, Massacre at Mountain Meadows, was published in 2008, I, I didn't want to work full-time anymore because I wanted to get to know that baby of mine who is now two better. <laughs> um, and so I, I tendered Rick my uh, resignation from full-time work when, what, after seeing that book through to its finish. And Rick was sad, <laughs> but he said to me, well, would you keep working part-time on this book. And I said, Oh, if I could do that, I would absolutely love to work part-time on this book. Um, famous last words. Anyways, um, <laughs> I also decided while I was editing book one, I absolutely loved history. And, and like any good journalist does, I wanted to uh, examine the sources and do all the source checking I could. That's how you're trained as a journalist. The only difference is, is now I'm just source checking with people who are dead. They're no longer living. Um, but as I was going through that process, I decided I don't just want to edit historians. I want to be a historian. And so um, I determined, again, once the book came out, I uh, started a master's program in American history at the University of Utah. We were living in Salt Lake City at the time so that I could become a historian myself. And then as we started working in um, on book two, uh, the, one of the greatest honors and privileges of my life, Rick asked me to join him as a co-author of volume two. I didn't know that. And I'm so glad you shared that part of your story. That's so cool to get a master's at, you know, with a couple kids and it took a <laughs> lot of courage because I love that you've just written this very unique story as part of your personal story in this whole space. And same with you, Rick, but that's yeah. great for it, our it listeners. It was very hard and I was blessed, Richard, to have an incredibly supportive spouse. I'm going to give a shout out to my spouse, Matt Brown, who... Um, Way to go, Matt. And my daughter's. who sacrificed their time with me so I could do this and um, be involved in this very important work. Um, but yeah, I had a incredibly, oh, sorry, I have a dog. Rick, you go. <laughs> Working on the Mountain Meadows Massacre is a challenging thing, an emotional thing, something that sucks, as I said, sucks the life out of you. I think uh, both Barbara and I and many of the people who helped us on these two books have felt a great deal of emotional trauma from studying this horrific uh, crime that occurred in Southern Utah in 1857. Uh, we've had nightmares. I've had times in the middle of the day when I've kind of zoned out and found myself mentally at the Mountain Meadows as the massacre was about to occur, wanting to run along the line of militiamen, waving my arms and screaming, don't do it. And so this drain, this emotional drain that occurs is what I think drives some people away from the topic. But having started it, having started it more than two decades ago, I thought it was very important that we finish the project, 
that we take this topic, which had been taboo in so many corners of Utah in particular, and shine a bright light into it, not leave any stone unturned, gather every available fact, and then look at the pieces and find out the ultimate truth of the massacre, awful as it was. Because only by doing that, I, we believe, can we bring about the healing that needs to take place. And there's, there's various types of healing that have to occur. People who are relatives of the perpetrators often feel a collective guilt, even though they themselves had nothing to do with it. They feel a guilt that has sort of been passed along from generation to generation. People who live in Utah or who are Latter-day Saints and have studied the history of their region or of their church, again, sort of feel this burden that they want to feel lifted. And then, of course, there is the, the very real and strong and continuing effect that the massacre had on the victims and their families to the clear down to the present day. And so one of the things that has motivated us to push forward, difficult as this project has been, and as emotionally excruciating as it has been, is to help bring about this healing, and in particular, to help people re realize what what we all need to do in order to have that healing take place. Maybe Barbara wants to say something about that. Sure. And I'm just thinking of um, when you introduced the, this podcast, Richard, you were saying you just, you don't know a lot about it and maybe a lot of your listeners don't. So maybe we could just back up a little bit and just give a very brief interview or overview of the massacre itself for those who uh, don't know much about it. And of course, those who are interested in learning everything that, Basically, there is to know about it after these two books can read Massacre at Mountain, Mountain Meadows or Vengeance is Mine, The Mountain Meadows Massacre and its Aftermath. Um, but to give a very brief overview, in 1857, uh, President James Buchanan perceived Utah, the people of Utah, to be in a, a state of rebellion. Uh, the federal government was concerned about the theocracy that was being practiced in Utah. Brigham Young was both the territorial governor and the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So it was it was somewhat of a theocratic society that the federal government was concerned about. Uh, Latter-day Saints were also practicing polygamy in a country that was very much monogamous. And also Latter-day Saints were forming friendships and alliances with local Native American tribes, which uh, the federal government at the time did not see as a positive thing. So for these reasons, Utah was seen to be in a state of potential rebellion. President Buchanan sent uh, a new governor. Back then, territories did not have the right to elect their own leaders. They were ruled by federally appointed leaders. So President Buchanan sent a new governor, a non-LDS governor, and a slate of uh, federally appointed officials who were not LDS to the territory to take over and control, quote unquote, the territory, control the Mormons. The Mormons perceived this approaching army that was coming with these federal appointees as threatening. They had the trauma of Missouri and Illinois in their minds still after being driven from those states in just a couple of the last uh, decade or so. And so they, they were worried about what their reasons were for the army coming. 
Uh, we're just very briefly giving an overview here, but to make a long story short, a, a feeling of hysteria set in and Brigham Young determined to not let these troops, let the soldiers enter and occupy Utah territory. He said the federal appointees could come in, but not the army. They developed various strategies to try and keep the uh, uh Army, they, they, they want to convince the federal government to pull the troops back and not have them occupy the territory. One of these was a strategy to encourage Native Americans to participate in cattle raiding with Latter-day Saints to try and convince the government that if you displace the Mormons, that all havoc was going to break loose in the territory. One of these cattle raids went awry at the Mountain Meadows. People uh, who were attacked, these immigrants who were headed for California, uh, became aware that white Latter-day Saints were involved in the raids. And rather than uh, letting them go on to California, uh, some of them had been murdered ex uh, in one of these raids. And rather than letting them go on to California, Southern Utah leaders made the very bad decision that violence was the answer and that they needed to wipe out all of the witnesses of what had been going on and uh, uh, committed the massacre, killing dozens of innocent children, women, and men in September of 1857. Just do you want to add more to, just, to I the want, I want Rick to add some more, but just the cattle raids were like, if I want to understand, make sure I understand that in our listeners, they were... You know, so there's there's groups coming through, and they bring cattle with them. Obviously, right. I'm kind of thinking mm -hmm. out loud, and the federal government wants them to be safe, um, but the LDS people are sort of inferring the Indians are raiding the cattle, but we, since we're here, can protect them. And just talk. I may not be getting yeah. that right, and so it. Yeah, no, that's. And so that's, stay out federal government because we got this because we're the ones that yeah, work with the Indians exactly. to solve this problem. Yeah, don't displace us. Don't drive us from our homes again. But because because we are here, we are making these trails, most of the trails to the West Coast pass through Utah Territory. And one of these cattle raids went sideways um, in the exactly. sense that, you know, you know, I don't know the right vocabulary, pioneers passing through or settlers passing through. Immigrants is the, Immigrants. the term that, yeah, historians would use. So these, so cattle um, companies were coming from Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, and they were driving cattle to uh, the gold fields of California. Cattle was at a premium at that time because there were so many people going to California for the gold rush and so forth. And you could sell cattle at a premium there. And so this was a common thing. There were a lot of cattle companies passing through Utah territory en route to California or settling there. California was the nation's newest state at the time. And so Young came up with a strategy Thinking, okay, let's convince the federal government that if you leave us here and leave us alone and let us continue to be here in the Great Basin, we will keep immigration safe. But if you threaten us, uh, all, all havoc is going to break loose and cattle raiding will start. And then secretly, privately, um, Brigham Young and his advisors were, were trying to encourage Native Americans to participate with them in these cattle raids. Now, we should make clear that. Brigham Young never intended that anyone be hurt by this. He never intended that there be murders. He never intended a massacre 
Um, but things went awry in Cedar City and local leaders there made some horrific decisions that okay. led to the mess. I think, Go for it, Rick. I think many students of Latter-day Saint or Utah history are aware of the raids that Lot Smith and members of the Territorial Militia of the Navajo Legion carried out on private supply wagons that were backing the army. Uh, these, were, these were not military convoys in the sense that they were part of the military. These were civilian convoys that were backing the, the U.S. Army, providing the supplies for them. And, you know, many people have heard of how Lot Smith uh, came upon one of these and got all of the Teamsters to move away, and then they lit them all on fire. Um, but the raid on immigrant cattle companies was part of this same the same policy, the same ploy to try to convince the federal government and in the case of the supply trains to slow the, the army from coming uh, into Utah territory. Now, as, as Barbara said, part of Brigham Young's policy was nonviolence. He felt that if the saints were not violent, that they would have greater political influence in Washington when Congress convened and considered what the president had done. The president had done this without having the sufficient backing from Congress. And so Brigham Young's feeling was that if we can just slow the army down and give Congress a chance to meet, Congress will decide that the president has gone too far and, in fact, back off. And something very much like that does end up happening. But unfortunately, down in the Cedar City area, there was some extremism that had developed and I think this is this is very important for us to understand in order to have proper healing. It's very easy in times of difficulty, in times of stress, to become on the extreme ends of a political spectrum or a spectrum of feeling that can cause people to do things that don't normally occur in peacetime. In peacetime, most civilizations of the world adhere to something very similar to the provision in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. But in periods of duress, particularly in periods of war, many of those same countries around the world mount armies of people to go out and do exactly the opposite, to kill people. And so, as I have studied mass killings and violence over the more than 30 years that I've been studying the Mount Meadows Massacre, I've realized that a lot of these things occur during periods of stress. And you had this Utah war on at the time. And the people in Cedar City were feeling a great deal of stress. And they were lapsing into extremism in part because of something that had happened four years earlier during an, another period of stress in Utah history. During the, the so-called Walker War, there were people in Cedar City that had a wide range of opinions about what they should do. The leaders became very, very strong and put those who disagreed with them in chains and threatened to execute them. So when that war was over, those, those moderates, um, if you will, picked up and they moved to California, leaving uh, a kind of groupthink in place there in the leadership of Cedar City. So they didn't have the kind of wide divergence of opinion that's often necessary to make councils uh, as useful as they can be. There's a there's a statement in, in the Old Testament that in, in councils there is safety. And one of the great lessons from the Mountain Meadows Massacre is that when people got together and expressed their diversity of opinions on a subject, 
more often than not, the council collectively made the right decision. But when people disregarded the council decision, went off on their own and made rogue decisions, more often than not, those decisions were wrong. So in in Cedar City during this time, when there are raids going on, the leadership in Cedar City begins to make decisions that are wrong about what should happen. Barbara, do you want to say more about that? Sure. Um, so as we mentioned, so it was intended to be a cattle raid, but uh, didn't go right. Some people were killed um, there. Uh, and, and then the immigrants began to circle their wagons and create and, and, and dug in. There was a siege situation. Outside of that corral were two immigrant men who had been trailing cattle. They were behind the main company, did not know what was going on at the Mountain Meadows. They're bringing these stray cattle in. Two more militiamen are on their way back to Cedar City to report what happened. They make, again, a horrible decision that they've got to contain the situation. So they fire on these two immigrant men. One of them, his name was William Maiden. They shot and killed Aiden's companion, whose name we don't know, uh, got away and these militiamen followed him and saw him get into the corral at the Mountain Meadows. And then they became aware everyone within that corral now is a witness to the fact that uh, Mormon militiamen are involved in this and that people have been murdered. And in that environment of war and war hysteria, they just worried this is going to make things worse. They fear for their lives. And um, as Rick mentioned, there's a council held in Cedar City, what to do. And the council says, this isn't this isn't right. We shouldn't hurt these people anymore. Let's send a messenger to Brigham Young to ask for advice. What, what should we do? Um, that was that is sent by uh, Cedar City State President, Mayor and Militia Major Isaac Haight. Young receives the letter on September 10th. He crafts a letter back saying if those who will go, uh, if they will go, just let them go on in peace. Unfortunately, that letter does not come back to May or September 13th after the massacre has occurred and the local militiamen, the local leaders send out militiamen to um, commit this heinous crime, thinking they need to contain the situation by just wiping everybody out, except for the children who are too young to tell tales. One of the unfortunate decisions in Cedar City and those environs that continues to have ramifications to this day is that even though this attack on the train and eventually the massacre were planned and led by the local white settlers, the intent from the beginning was to blame the entire series of crimes on their local Paiute neighbors, some of whom were likely also their brothers and sisters in the church, people who had been baptized. And that, in fact, did happen. They blamed it. Once the massacre occurred, they blamed it on the, on the Indians who were living in that region, the Native peoples. And they have borne the brunt of this blame unjustly since 1857. And one of the things that has to occur for there to be healing is for people to acknowledge that the dominant responsibility, the major role in all of this, was with the local white settlers, probably 50 to 60 as best we can count in our in the in one of the appendices in our 
first book, Massacre at Mount Meadows, we list all of the participants in the massacre and uh, give them a, a, a letter rating, an A or a B, for what level of participation they had in the massacre. So I think that's one thing that has to happen is we have to acknowledge that Paiutes have been unjustly saddled with the the total responsibility for a crime into which they were cajoled into participating somewhat reluctantly, and then, of course, uh, carried the burden now for generations. Yeah, and they were cajoled into participating. So again, they could they were victimized too, so that they could uh, these white settlers could blame it on them. So so these are victims in some ways too. The the Paiute people of Utah. Um, so maybe circling back now to our personal stories of of encountering and working with this story, as I was encountering it and working on all these sources as as the content editor and uh, putting in every horrendous detail, making sure every horrendous source detail that uh, we could find was included about the massacre itself. I was traumatized. Um, I really wanted to know what happened and encountering and facing what happened was incredibly painful, incredibly difficult. Um, I've said before, I was so grateful I had an office at the time that I could close the door and cry. Um, and I was a, a a young mother, a mother of young children. Uh, I was the same age as many of the immigrant women. And my children were the same age as the children, their children. And so I, I put myself in their shoes and just could not imagine the horror of what they went through. Um. So I would often go down the hall to Rick's office and I, I started just feeling this overwhelming feeling that I needed to meet descendants of victims. And I, I told that to Rick many times and finally says, well, you know, there's um, the direct descendant of Alexander and Eliza Fancher and the, a direct, direct descendant of John Twitty Baker. They're coming up to meet with Elder Jensen pretty soon. You can meet them after that meeting. They're coming here from Texas and Arkansas. So I was standing outside of the office <laughs> as soon as the meeting was over and they came into the hallway. I grabbed their hands and was walking with them towards the elevator. And I just said, I just want you to know, I think your ancestors were good people. And I'm so sorry for what happened to them. And their eyes got big and then they both grabbed me and hugged me. And we were standing there in the lobby outside the elevator crying and it was, I was kind of shocked. I didn't know what their reaction would be. I was just shocked at how like all of us just burst into tears, even though we had met 30 seconds before. And I realized they were dealing with their own pain, of course, being descendants of the victims that we, we were both feeling pain and being able to express that. And they, they just said, thank you. Thank you. That means so much to us. And they said, you know, we're having a reunion of the descendants of the victims in the spring. This was April of 2007, um, reenacting the departure of the wagon train in Beller Spring, Arkansas. Why don't you come out and participate in that with us? And I was honored. Uh, my dad had actually invited me to go to a different event in Northwest Arkansas that same time. It was coincidental. So I, my dad paid for me. I went out and met all of these descendants of victims and they were angry. They were angry at the church. 
they were ang- they were angry and because i had studied i was angry too i was angry at what had happened to their ancestors and because i had faced that history i was in- willing able to sit with their anger and to sit with their grief and to understand it and i just could listen and let them kind of vent their anger at me and i just told them again and again i i'm so sorry i'm so sorry and they were all always surprised and said, thank you. We just, we just needed to hear that. Um, so I, I went back to Utah and I just said, hey, we've got to do more to, to meet with these people. Let's, can we work on some reconciliation? While I was out in Arkansas, they invited me to their homes for dinner. Um, they, showed, they gave me tours. They showed me around. They took them to uh, burial sites of their ancestors. And I came back to Utah and met with Rick and Elder Jensen. I said, let's do more of this. Let's, let's get more of this going. So maybe Rick can pick up there. Will you you circle back at at some point and just go through a little, I want to just for our listeners, was this, you know, a lot of people died. Was it a multiple day event and, um, or was it a very quick event and, did they know they were being attacked or were the people attacking them, presenting them as trusted um, settlers and then turned on them? So I kind of know that story from the podcast I listened to on Mormonland, but maybe you can share some of that at some point with our listeners. Sure. So backing up, when the emigrant company approached Cedar City, part of Brigham Young's policy was to get the people in Utah to preserve their cattle and their grain so that if the federal army did come to Utah and the citizens of Utah had to flee to the mountains and, and undergo a siege kind of war, that they'd be able to survive without starvation. And since these were cattle companies driving through Utah, part of what Isaac Haight suggested be done when the company came through was that they try to get as many cattle from that company as they could. So when the company came into Cedar City, they had managed to get some grain despite an embargo on grain sales. And they took the grain to a mill and they were charged an entire beef just to grind that grain, which, you know, posts on the pla- on the plains crossing the Americas and in the mountains, they charged whatever they could get. But still, if you were on the receiving end of that, you felt that that wasn't very historic. So that that was that contributed to the frustration that the immigrants had felt coming down through the territory. In previous uh, years, in 1851, Alexander Fancher had come through, and that was during a period of time when the local people were selling freely to immigrants who were coming through, and it turned out to be financially beneficial to both. And it it became a kind of conventional wisdom that if you're going all the way to California. Provision yourself through getting to Salt Lake, and that way you don't have to carry as much weight and wear down your animals. Then when you get to to Utah, you can reprovision, take some money with your reprovision, and you can get the food you need to get to California. Well, in 1857, that proved to be incorrect because of the Utah War. So these immigrants came down through. They were not able to get the the grain and the other the fresh vegetables and other things they needed to feed their families. These were young families for the most part, uh, very, very similar to what you might find in a, a part of Utah where there are new subdivisions and a lot of young families moving in, parents with small children, some parents with teenagers. 
So that's the kind of immigrants they were going through. These weren't just men. These were families moving through from from Arkansas and a few from elsewhere, uh, moving to California. So by the time they got to southern Utah, they were frustrated that they were unable to get the food that they needed. They had some tensions in, in Cedar City. They weren't great tensions, but they felt they had enough that they needed to talk to the senior man in Cedar City, Isaac Hate. So some of them approached his house. He interpreted their approach as the approach of a mob. He called out the local marshal to ar- arrest them. They acted the way most immigrants uh, act in crossing the plains. You don't want to leave one of your members with one of the local people wherever you are when you're crossing. You want to take them with you because you don't know what's going to happen to them. So they simply said, look, well, we will just move on down the trail. And so they moved on down the trail and, and uh, thought that that was over. Everything was over. But Isaac Haight, he made a decision that he wanted to do something about that. So. He wrote to his military leader in Parowan, William Dame, and said, we want to call out the militia and surround these people. And what they've done, they would have fined them cattle. Uh, and Dame wrote back and said, no words are but wind. You know, nothing's happened there. It was sufficient quali- quantity to, or, to uh, call them out. Uh, and so Haight decided that unable to get the permission from his military leaders, he would do this unofficially. He called in a, a very strong man named John D. Lee from a local settlement called Fort Harmony. And he had Lee arrange an attack on the company. Now, as Barbara said, there was a council on Sunday. Haight mentioned to his council what he had done. The council refused to back him, said that wasn't right. And so uh, Haight sent out a couple of men to call off Lee and his company. But Lee jumped the gun. He was supposed to wait until they were down in the valley of the Santa Clara River. Instead, he jumped the gun and attacked them at Mountain Meadows. People died. And so, as Barbara explained, they then became aware, the immigrants became aware that there were white men involved in this, despite their efforts to try to portray this as an Indian attack. When Haight became aware of that, he went to to Parowan and basically Dame called out his council. The council said, gather up their cattle and send them on their way. But afterwards, Haight pulled Dame aside and said, look, you don't understand Uh, And basically, he gave him what he thought was true, but in fact was not. Um, He, he, he in fact, told them that most of them were dead and that if, since they knew that white men are involved, if they went on to California, they'd raise an army at the same time the army was coming from the east and that they would be caught in between. So they made the, the very horrible and erroneous decision to wipe everyone out who could, who could, was old enough to tell the tale. And so they sent members of the local territorial militia, the Navajo Legion, to the Mountain Meadows. That first attack occurred on a Monday. There was occasional gunfire between Monday and Friday. But on Friday, the, the militiamen went and approached the wagon company under a white flag. And John D. Lee went in and negotiated and promised to give them safe passage back to the Latter-day Saint settlements. They lined them all up and... You know, to make a long story short, then butchered everybody wow. who was old enough to be able to remember it. So it's a horrific, horrific story. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we want to really spend, I think, the remainder of the time talking about how to heal from this. You know, what, what do you do if you find out that your ancestor was a participant in the Mountain Meadows Massacre? Maybe that's something you've known your whole life. Barbara, do you want to jump in here? 
Oh, Barbara's on mute. Sure. Um, so I, you know, I started talking about going out to Arkansas and um, just saying I was sorry and meeting descendants of victims. And what I was surprised to find, I wasn't necessarily expecting this, but I, both Rick and I, we had experienced symptoms of PTSD-like symptoms. Um, I, I, we spoke to counselors because uh, emotional support counselors, because we were having such a hard time writing the story. And they said, yeah, you've got PTSD-like symptoms from studying a historic trauma. So I was surprised that once I went out and started meeting people, and I know Rick experienced this as well, um, and saying we were sorry to victims, I started to feel better. My PTSD-like symptoms started to go away. And it was because I realized though I couldn't go back in time and change what had happened in history as desperately as I wanted to, I could do something for the descendants of these victims. I could tell them I was sorry. And Rick and I befriended them. That's another whole long story, but we became dear friends with these people. And listening to them, we said, what can we do for you? And what they wanted was uh, for the land, the mountain meadows where the remains of their ancestors still lie buried in mass, mass graves, they wanted that land protected from development and so forth. And so they wanted National Historic Landmark status. So we joined with them to help them achieve that, work together with them. And then the other thing that descendants have often asked me is just, just make sure the story is told make sure the truth about what happened to our ancestors is told and make sure that they're never forgotten. And so that's why this book is so important to us. It is telling the truth about what happened. And, and again, realizing there is something I could do for the victims in, in assuring that, that people don't never forget them and, and, and what happened to them. And so in spite of encountering incredible pain, telling this story by owning it, feeling sorrow for it, expressing my sorrow to descendants of victims for what happened. I was surprised that that brought healing and peace. And it brings healing and peace for the descendants of the victims who are holding all that pain as well. And it's actually brought incidences of incredible joy as we've worked with these folks. Um, after I started working on volume two, Vengeance is Mine, after all of these things I've described took place, I was looking at some, uh, a line of my family history I didn't know much about. And I discovered I was a descendant of a perpetrator. Wow. Uh, and so I called on my, my descendants of victim friends and apologized all over again. I said, yeah. I just found out I'm a descendant. I need to apologize for my ancestor. And they just said, that's okay. <laughs> we love you. It's okay. So there, there's all kinds of ways one can approach that pain. We can choose to just deny it and not want to talk about it. We can choose to victim blame, say that the, this, the people that, they deserve this somehow. We can choose to try and exonerate our ancestors who participated in it, excuse it, 
And that's one way of trying to deal with the pain, but ultimately the pain never goes away. And through very personal experiences, Rick and I, and he'll talk about this in a minute too, but Rick and I have discovered that there is a way to peace and healing, and it is through experiencing it, facing it, letting yourself feel that pain and sorrow, letting it go through you, and then owning it and saying sorry, and we can move move past that. Since Vengeance is Mine has been published, we've had lots of people on social media and so forth reaching out to us and saying, I'm a descendant of a perpetrator. I'm a descendant of a perpetrator. And I've just been counseling them as, as a fellow descendant, or even just if you're a Latter-day Saint, this is our people, True. right? And just counseling them, just, it's okay to feel that way and just express sorrow for it. And, and that's, we can do that. And that's the best thing we can do today. It's a natural human tendency to want to glorify one's ancestors. And I think that's because it's natural to feel that somehow or another, we are the heir to whatever they have left for us culturally. And therefore, we want them to be heroes and, and people who have done great things that then mean that we must be great because we had great ancestors. And the reality is that all of our ancestors were human. And not a single one among them was perfect. And there is a likelihood, given the intermarriage of people in Latter-day Saint society, that a significant proportion of multi-generation pioneer ancestor Latter-day Saints will discover that somewhere in that big family tree, there may be a perpetrator of the Mount Meadows Massacre or the Circleville Massacre or other horrific events that occurred. And so, as Barbara said, what should you do? I think it's been the tendency of many families to this point, first of all, to bury it. Second, if it comes out, to deny it. Third, if they can't deny it, to try to somehow or another excuse or condone it, and as part of that, to vilify the victims. Well, Barbara and I and our other co-authors in the previous project and many of the people who helped us, we've looked at all of these supposed rationalizations. One of the rationalizations that was actually developed after the fact was that these people supposedly poisoned a spring that killed people. Wow. Because nothing else that, that they purportedly did would have justified a single person dying, let alone the whole group. But this idea that they poisoned people seemed to be justification for returning with a you know, like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, lex talionis, as it's sometimes called in the law. But as we investigated that and looked at all of these supposed instances of poisoning and related activities, and then presented our evidence to a panel of doctors, what we determined was that there was no poisoning. What was later interpreted as poisoning was naturally occurring anthrax that infected cattle at the time. Many of the cattle died, and then people who either ate the cattle meat or inhaled cattle spores as they were skinning the cattle or got the spores underneath their skin through blemishes or cuts, they got sick, they would get bad sores, they would get upset digestive tracts, and some would die. But none of that was poisoning. As the federal investigators said when they first looked at this idea of poisoning, even if they they had brought a lot of poison, and why would they do that? Dumping any amount of poison in the spring would have done had little effect because it, what would have washed away quickly in the volume of the spring. 
So that story that's been passed down is simply not true. Other stories have been passed down from generation to generation, alibis, if you will, saying, well, my ancestor didn't participate because he did the following. Many of those prove not to be true. So we encourage people to, first of all, get the truth. The Savior said, the truth shall make you free. Lay aside traditions that have been handed down by families. Study what we've written upon about this subject and find out for yourselves what's true and then accept the truth. Then rather than try to condone what your ancestors have done, do as Barbara has suggested, and that is express your sorrow at what was done. You're not responsible, but as we've often said, Though no one today is responsible for the massacre itself, we are all responsible for how we deal with this topic. And if we seek to justify what was done, to condone what was done, to deny what was done, then we become party to this intergenerational crime. And with that, we perpetuate the trauma. To bring healing, we have to acknowledge the truth and then express our feelings about it, particularly express feelings of sorrow towards those who were the victims. And then we need to go forward to do what they want to be done, which is to remember those people whose lives were unjustly taken from them and to preserve the land on which they their remains still lie today. Now, fortunately, a good thing that happened over the last three decades or so that I've been engaged in this is that church leaders have very much supported the idea of preserving the land down at the Mountain Meadows. When I first became involved, the church owned two and a half acres down there. At the, at the behest of the people who want it preserved, many of us have gone forward and proposed and received acceptance of the idea that we preserve as much land down there as possible in order to preserve it from development that would somehow or another keep you from being able to imagine what happened. So from that two and a half acres, we've gone to where there's now hundreds of acres that have been acquired and brought under National Historic Landmark status and monuments have been erected. When you go to the Mountain Meadows today, you can imagine, if you know the, the story, you can imagine exactly what happened. And there is a, there is a feeling of reverence that's associated with, with that site. I, I always feel a sense of wonder when I go to historic sites and imagine what happened on those on those properties. And if you read what we have written about what happened there and then go to the site, I think you too will feel a sense of reverence and awe and can come away a feeling that those people who died should be honored, not vilified. I'm just so moved I listening to, to both of you and one of the things I'm struck with listeners is these are historians. It's an academic project, but this is a heartfelt, deeply emotional, deeply personal, deeply pastoral, deeply mourn, barren, comfort, baptism, covenant type of ministry. This is multifaceted um, work you're doing of healing and hope. And Barbara going, you know, both of you have, you know, reached out to the descendants of the victims and of... And so that's one of the things I'm, you know, there's so much reconciliation, but the principles of this story apply to today with the extremism and and also the need for reconciliation for different things that occur in all of our personal lives and in the broader macro world. But that's another topic. I keep sharing. I mean, people are probably 
I know you'll get to this, but people are probably interested in Brigham Young's role because I've kind of been cloudy about that. Um, you've kind of hint, talked about that and, and, you know, John Lee was executed where other people equally as what's the right equally as responsible that were not prosecuted. So that's in the book. I don't, I, I you're free to go wherever you want to go. We've got about another 30 minutes. So it's, I, you can go wherever you want to go. I just trust you to know what you want to share. Okay. Well, maybe I'll start with the first part of that question and Rick could do the second part of the question. <laughs> Um, so we wanted to track very closely what Brigham Young knew and when he knew it. Uh, we've talked already a little bit about this strategy in which he was uh, encouraging cattle raiding, but again, he never uh, intended anything to le- learn, lead to anyone being hurt uh, physically, just to cattle being raided. Um and so what happens is he re- received this letter from Isaac Haight in uh, Cedar City, as we mentioned. He writes back on September 13th to let the immigrants go. That's the first thing that he hears, that something is going on, something's gone awry, something unusual is happening down in Cedar City. Uh, he starts to hear rumors that there's been a massacre in late September uh, a Native American, a Ute, uh, shares the rumor that this has happened. Um, and then on September 29th, John D. Lee, who was one of the key ringleaders in the massacre, comes to Brigham Young and reports the massacre. He lies to Young about what has happened, starting with claiming that the massacre had just recently happened, even though it was September 29th. And it happened actually on September 11th. And he makes it seem that it's an express. So uh, it looks like they immediately reported the massacre to Young rather than they waited because they were worried about what are we going to say? Because we received this letter too late that told us not to do this from Young. So that's the first lie. Um, He goes into Young's office. Assistant church historian Wilford Woodruff, an apostle Wilford Woodruff, is in the office as well. And Woodruff records that day what Lee is saying. And that's how we know uh, what he said. He lies to Young. This is where the victim blaming begins. He uh, says these horrible things that they were part of the mob in Missouri and Illinois, which they weren't. Uh, he says that they that Brigham or that Joseph Smith should have been killed a lot sooner than he was, which is not true, and that uh, they have poison springs, which has led to uh, the deaths of local Indians and some Mormons as well. And what's interesting, so this is the lie that Lee shares on September 29th, 1857. Notice how similar that was to what, when I asked my dad why this happened in 1990, he talked about poisoning and it had changed it a little bit saying they had the gun that killed Joseph Smith. But that rumor starts that early and it continues for generation. These are the things we want to, and we have debunked in our book. So Young learns about that in late September, and then he has an, an Indian agent, uh, a Mormon Indian agent, share a similar story with Young based on things he's heard from John T. Lee and others. And so these rumors start early on. And so Young is led to believe he's lied to by these leaders who he trusts that uh, these horrible things were true and that it probably was uh, an Indian massacre because of poisoning and so forth. It's not for many years that he like incrementally starts to learn more 
that there may have been white men involved, including John D. Lee. Ultimately, it's not until 1870 when Nephi Johnson, who was a participant in the massacre, tells him everything. And Young believes Nephi Johnson and trusts that story. And then he fully has uh, more of, of the details of what actually happened. And in terms of prosecution of the people who were involved, there's an initial effort made after the Utah War to begin to investigate the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Federal officials are divided. They During the winter of 1857-58, in their bivouac camp up in the area of what's now Wyoming, but was then Utah, the tensions developed between two different groups of the federal officials. Some were very militant, wanted to come in and be very strong-armed in dealing with the Latter-day Saints. Others were more peacemakers. They wanted to come in and settle settle the dispute. And so tensions developed between the two groups and initial efforts to investigate the massacre, which could have borne fruit through a series of almost um, comic things that go back and forth. They're not comic because this is a horrible thing, but bad decisions that are made, things go back and forth. They aren't able to come to a conclusion on the massacre early on. And there's another opportunity in 1859 to have a a second um, court occur. And by that time, Brigham Young has heard enough about what has happened down at the Mountain Meadows that he's disturbed. And he goes to the federal district attorney and he makes an offer. He says, we need to have this tried. And I will do everything in my power to bring in the suspects if you have this tried in federal court. Now, some people have claimed, some historians have claimed that Brigham Young wanted to have it tried only in the Utah probate courts that the saints controlled. But we have we have evidence that's not been seen before showing that Young goes to the federal district attorney and says, no, you do it in federal court, but do it in such a manner that it's fair to all and that it's close enough that the witnesses can come without undue hardship. But there is a desire on the part of some of the federal officials not to resolve the issue then for political reasons that we explain in our book. So the Civil War then ensues. After the Civil War ends, then interest develops again to prosecute the perpetrators of the massacre. Sadly, sadly for the victims, the primary motivation to prosecute this is not to get justice for the victims. The primary motivation to prosecute it is because there were some political advantages to the people who were doing the prosecution. They, a, a minority of people in Utah who wanted political and economic control of the territory realized they could never get it in a society in which people were block voting, as the saints were at the time. And so they came up with the idea of disenfranchising all Latter-day Saints, making it so no no active, faithful, devout Latter-day Saint could vote. And that would make it possible for this small group of people to gain economic and political control of Utah. So they went to Washington and they used two long-time public um, issues in order to try to get the public attention, sex and violence. For sex, it was polygamy. For violence, it was the Mountain Meadows Massacre. And they lobbied Congress to say, you should take away the right to vote and serve on juries that the Latter-day Saints have. Congress looked at that and thought, well, 
this just doesn't seem American to take away the rights that these people have had for decades. And so we'll give you a piece of legislation that's not what you want. It's somewhat watered down, but it'll 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 make it more likely that you'll have an even number of Latter-day Saints and non-Latter-day Saints on juries. It was called the Poland Act. So that Poland Act gets passed, and after the act gets passed, a federal grand jury meets in September of 1874 and indicts nine people for the roles in the massacre, including some of the ringleaders. At that point, arrest warrants are issued, and very quickly, John D. Lee and William Dame are taken into custody, and eventually three others as well. So five of the nine indicted people are taken into custody. The desire on the part of the prosecutors is to go after William Dame because he was the senior military official. He was also a state president in Parowan. And so he he was the biggest fish in their net. They wanted to go after him. They already had one of the indicted co-conspirators who agreed to turn state's evidence. They went to John D. Lee and tried to get him to turn state's evidence as well. They told him that there were two counts against him. They dropped the first count if he agreed to write a confession. And he would walk and be free if his confession was, quote-unquote, satisfactory, meaning that it provided them the goods that they needed to prosecute uh, Dame and perhaps others. Lee wrote his so-called confession. It was not sufficient. And so being unable to convict Dame, they decided they were going to go after Lee instead. However, in the very first trial of Lee, they decided not to seek a conviction. As you'll see in our book, which explains for the first time ever exactly what was really happening in that first trial. You'll see that the prosecution deliberately threw the original trial in order to try to get stronger legislation. Wow. There's then, there's then a second trial, and a new prosecutor is sent out who doesn't have a political dog in the fight. He goes after John D. Lee and becomes the first federal prosecutor to accept Brigham Young's off-expressed desire to cooperate. And so when he accepts that, Brigham Young then helps get the witnesses into court who were participants in the massacre, who then provide evidence against Lee. Lee is convicted and then executed. Now, it's been wrongly said, and maybe Barbara could jump in here, that there was a conspiracy between the prosecutor and Brigham Young to have that be the end of the subject. But that's not true. Barbara, you want to jump in? Sure. Barbara, yeah. um- Sure. So, um, yeah, so I always thought one of the things I always thought was that and and then this is a common perception that Johnny Lee was a scapegoat. That was it. Once he was convicted and executed, end of story, that all they needed was one um, perpetrator and, and that would be justice. But in fact, the prosecutor, his name is Sumner Howard, decided to continue to go after um, other perpetrators, and he was never able to uh, find the ones that he did have enough evidence for to convict. Uh, one of those was um, John Higby. Another was Isaac Haight. Another perpetrator named Philip Klingensmith had turned state's evidence. And uh, others, there just wasn't enough hard of evidence. But uh, many of some of these lived on the land. They Nephi Johnson goes into hiding. Other perpetrators, they live in hiding, and they're never caught. And so, uh, ultimately, John D. Lee is the only one who is convicted, uh, tried, convicted, and executed for his role in the crime. And one of the reasons for that is because Brigham Young dies not long after John D. Lee is executed. George A. Smith 
who had been a member of the First Presidency, he passes away too. And those were the two key figures that politically the prosecutors in the original trial wanted to go after. And so once those people were dead, the the case lost its political power. And so th- those who wanted to gain political control of Utah then turned to sex, namely polygamy, yeah. and pushed hard to arrest people who were polygamous, which led to the 1880s raid period and eventually uh, to the, the church finances collapsing and ultimately to the Wilford Woodruff Manifesto of 1890. But coming coming back to the massacre, one of the well, one of the things that happened that's unfortunate is that even though there were 50 to 60 people who had some kind of role in the massacre, once John D. Lee had been executed, it was easy for all of those other participants to dump on him, to say it was his fault. And so he did, he was guilty in that he he was a co-conspirator in the deaths of many, many people. But in the sense of the Old Testament scapegoat, upon whose head hands were placed and the sins of the many were transferred to him. John D. Lee did become a posthumous scapegoat in the sense that other participants began to say, no, it was his fault. And the story, the story told for many years is that John D. Lee was this one overzealous person who led and carried out the whole thing. Uh, that's simply not true. And the Lee family likewise has borne a disproportionate share of the blame over time. Blame that's really community in nature. This was community violence and hence the need for the entire community and all of the descendants of all the participants to acknowledge the roles of their ancestors and to do the things necessary to bring about healing. Talk about the children that survived. Um, how, I, from what I understand, they did not kill children that could not be witnesses and explain what had happened. Um, and then their parents are gone. So who takes care of the children? And that's obviously in the book. But just give us a little overview of these uh, these kids. So 17 of the very youngest children, aged six and under, were spared. They are farmed out by by participants in the massacre, <laughs> Philip Klingensmith, who was the bishop of Cedar City, who had participated in killing their parents. Uh, he finds homes and wow. uh, farms out these children. They are separated from their siblings, cousins, and playmates, and put in separate homes where they are told to forget, encouraged to forget. The only three that stay together are uh, three little Dunlap sisters. And... Rachel Hamlin, who cares for the children the first night after the massacre because she lives at the ranch at the North End, uh, she convinces John D. Lee, she says, to let him keep those three little girls together. The baby sister, just a one-year-old girl, had been shot through the arm, and her arm was just dangling there just below the elbow. And oh. her older sisters, uh, the oldest who of whom was six, they begged to stay. They begged Rachel to let them stay with her baby sister. So she convinced Lee to let them stay together. Incidentally, those three sisters remembered who they were. They helped each other remember who they were. But the other uh, young children are separated, and most of them don't know who they are by the time they are retrieved by federal agents and returned to their families in 1859 in Arkansas. Wow. Yeah, it's tough. It's, it's really tough to hear about those poor little children. And again, when we, when we talk about befriending descendants of victims, it's, 
for the most part, descendants of these little children. So being able about... to, uh, one of the, we, we've talked about some joyous uh, experiences and uh, one of those joyous experiences is because we've done so much research on this, we have really been able to find out what happened uh, in the lives of these children when they were in Utah, the brief time they were uh, there for a year and a half. And we were able to find out a lot of detail about their return, their return journey to their families, how they were returned and so forth. That is one of the chapters in our book. And that Good. book is titled Precious Legacies. Oh my gosh. To those 17 children. Uh, I had an experience. I was invited by descendants of victims a few years ago to go out and speak to them at their annual meetings that they have every September. And I chose to read that chapter to them about all of this detail, everything we could have, we could find about their ancestors, these little children. And it gave me such uh, pleasure. And um, again, such a feeling of healing to be able to share that with their descendants they were so appreciative afterward. Everybody was coming up and saying, thank you. There's so much more information than we knew. And I had one little girl who was the fourth great granddaughter of Alexander and Eliza Fancher. She was born on September 11th. She was about 10 at the time. She came to me and she said, can I have your paper? Can I have your paper you gave? Because I want to share it with my, my elementary school class. And I gave her the printout of, of my talk. I have a picture of it on Facebook. And she was so happy to have that. And I wouldn't trade the joy of that incident, for example, that event. I, there's so countless events like that. Um, again, going back to by facing our history and just dealing with it, actually, it can lead to joy and, and reconciliation and peace. I'm so We've worried. mentioned... The, ahead, the national historic landmark status that was gained for the Mountain Meadows. The, there are three Mountain Meadows massacre groups. And one of those groups, the Mountain Meadows Monument Foundation, was the group that first proposed that there be national historic landmark status for the Mountain Meadows. And the first presidency approved doing that. And so then provided the funding to bring in some consultants because it's, it's difficult to get National Historic Landmark status. But the church provided funding, and we worked hard for a couple of years with these consultants to prepare the paperwork necessary. And then it came time to go before a committee in Washington, D.C., in order to propose this. And so I was talking to the leaders of the three groups, and I said, somebody is going to have to go and represent the viewpoint of the victims of the massacre. And they talked amongst themselves and finally asked me to represent the descendants of the victims. So Barbara and I and others went to Washington. I remember going to the committee meeting early to see what was happening and, and just proposal after proposal after proposal was turned back for further research and study. And it became apparent how difficult it was to get this type of status. And then it came, finally came time in the afternoon for our proposal. And the others that we heard during our same session were all turned back. When it came time for ours, I stood up to represent, I stood up as a church employee, representing, of course, the church in that capacity, but spoke 
as the representative of the victims of the massacre and told the story from the viewpoint of the victims. I've given many, many speeches, many, many talks over the years in lots of settings. This may have been, certainly was one of the most difficult talks I've ever given because I grew so emotional telling the story of how these good people wrongly had their lives snuffed out, entire families or portions of families. The committee listened. The heads of the various organizations that went out with us, the Three Mountain Meadows groups, State of Utah, um, a representative from whatever interest group there was that had a role in all of this, they each stood up in turn and expressed their support for it. And then the committee voted. And when they voted, we heard the first positive reply to a proposal <laughs> had been made that day, as, as I recall. And they granted that this go forward. And then it went through the additional processes. And then we met all met together in, at the Mountain Meadows. And the director of Zion National Park came up representing the Department of the Interior and provided the plaques that you can now see when you go down there, establishing the Mountain Meadows Massacre historic site as the National Historic Landmark. So that's one of the things that we've been blessed to do that helps bring about the this type of healing. Now, sadly, the monuments at the Mountain Meadows, like monuments throughout the, the West, all of us have seen, have experienced graffiti and vandalism over time. One of the ways that relatives of the perpetrators of the massacre can heal and show their respect is by respecting this land and the markers that are on it and teaching the truth to subsequent generations so that subsequent generations will likewise respect this. As, I, as we said before, no one, responsible, no one responsible for the massacre is alive today, but we're all responsible for how we deal with it. There are lessons we can learn from this horrific act of violence. And if we choose to learn those lessons and pass on those lessons to subsequent generations, perhaps we can avoid future violence and also avoid future perpetuation of lies that only perpetuate hatred and intergenerational trauma. Instead, we can perpetuate healing and learning and understanding. Wow, I'm just so moved on so, so many Richard, levels. I'd love you to talk about implications for today, just the broader implications. You talked about extremism that existed at the time, Rick, and I don't know if you want to go that direction, but uh, as I get older, I value the voices and perspectives of historians. My brother's a historian, and I recognize owning our history, understanding our history, even if our diff history is difficult, as the United States history is sometimes difficult. Um, it, it Owning that, teaching that, it helps us to do better as a society, why sometimes we don't want to do the very things that you've done here and our church has done, and the healing that that creates, and also the, the teaching that brings into our lives not to make the same mistakes again. So I don't know if you want to go that direction at all. That's kind of a whole other segment, or just kind of we're coming close to you know our time we can go another 10 minutes. So I'll just let you decide what you want to share in the last 10 minutes. Sure. So just maybe we could touch on that real briefly. And then I 
at the end of the show, I'd like to share um, an email address Good. that I've created. Rick and I have been talking about how we've been, we've had the opportunity to, through our work experiences, meet descendants of victims. I know that there are countless others who are also descendants of perpetrators or just Latter-day Saints who feel sorrow for what happened, who might want to share their feelings. Um, I've created an email address if people want to send those. And uh, Rick and I have been talking about we um, could compile these and take excerpts from some of these um, letters. If, if anyone wants to write in and share their feelings about how they feel about it as a Latter-day Saint or as a descendant of a perpetrator, um, maybe I'll just share that really quick. It's, it's MMM. So in other words, the acronym for Mountain Meadows Massacre, but MMM Reconciliation at gmail.com. And Richard, maybe we could include that in the notes. We will. But um, I, I would invite anyone to participate in that way that, that would like to. Um, on the subject of extremism, that is one thing, just observing how this extremism and uh, this us-them mentality and uh, atmosphere of fear led to this horrific atrocity. And we can see elements of that in every society society uh, in the world today, I think, and, and in, in our American society, if you're listening in the United States or elsewhere. Um, and so it's just really important to avoid that extremism, to move away from an us-them mentality, to see every other human being that we interact with as, as our brothers and sisters and seek to understand each other. We may have very different viewpoints on things, but seek that understanding. Seek to understand where people are coming from. If they're feeling anger about something, if they're feeling painful about something, seek to understand why before jumping to a judgment or before refusing to hear what it is that they have to say. And I do think that things could have been different in 1857, we wouldn't be sitting here in this podcast today talking about the Mountain Meadows Massacre if if things had been seen differently back then. So I hope there's never another incident like this. And that's why, like you say, studying history is so important if we learn from it and make the present better and our future better for our children. It takes a lot for societies to go from the general principle, thou shalt not kill, to thou shalt go out and kill. And one of the things that happens that causes societies to flip from one point to the other is treating another group of people as the other, as being somehow either not human or less than human or inhuman by vilifying them. And sadly, in today's world where we have most people getting their news from their social media feeds, what we end up with is we end up with information fed to us in such a way that it reinforces our personal biases and doesn't give us a broader view of issues. So as Barbara said, if we will listen to others, particularly those that are different from ourselves, and listen to what they have to say, and in some cases, many cases, probably most cases, recognize that reasonable people can differ at times without requiring that we somehow or another need to become angry or insulting or warlike. So I do think that the, that there's a great deal that can be learned from this about our current circumstances and the need for kindness and patience and understanding 
and accepting others who are different from ourselves. I'm just so moved. Barbara is holding up her, her T-shirt, which says kind, kind, kind. I just, this is, you know, if what would you like to say to the Fancher Baker um, descendants? You've already talked about them. You've talked to them. You've shared experiences. If they're listening, mm-hmm. what would you like to say? You've already done this. And I think if I'm a descendant of that wagon train, your work, your book, what you've shared on this podcast has helped me. But would you like to take any time and just talk directly? I can te- see tears in Barbara's eyes on the Zoom meeting already because um, I know you care so much about this group of people and you love them. I would just, um, if there are any descendants of victims listening, um, who we haven't met yet <laughs> uh, or whom we have become friends with. Um, thank you for your willingness to hear our sorrow. Thank you for your forgiveness. Although none of the us today are responsible for it. Thank you for your forgiveness of our ancestors. Thank you for your forgiveness of our, our church. Thank you for, in spite of this history, being able to open your hearts to us and be our friends. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your willingness to interact with us. Thank you for coming to the Mountain Meadows every other year to remember your ancestors. Thank you for inviting Rick and I to share our research and our hearts with you. Thank you for inviting us to speak once again this year at the Mountain Meadows to you. And and thank you for sharing your stories of your ancestors with us and helping us love your ancestors even more. At a time when there's such a tendency in the world to divide into groups and treat each other unkindly, I want to express gratitude to the relatives of the victims that we have met who have been nothing but kind to us, who have been loving, who have uh, sent flowers when I've had a family member die, who yeah. send Christmas cards and birthday cards and texts expressing concern when we're ill or otherwise in need of, of aid. We have become, as uh, some of them have written, friends forever. Um, I love, you know, your feelings about today. And I think of perfect love casteth out fear. And um, this morning in my walk, I thought of the voices that you're listening to, listeners. Fill your veins with fear about other people. You probably need to start listening to different voices. Um, That can be cable news or different circles you're in that you kind of mentioned. I think that my wife and I just returned from the Holy Land, and everything that I learned about the life of Christ is not fear-based. Um, it's about love and hope and healing and reconciliation, and this didn't need to happen. I don't—you would never say this. Um, some people say, well, these things sort of need to happen so we can learn these lessons. That dismisses the lives of the victims. You're both cringing when I even brought that up, and you probably heard that dismisses— um, 
the pain of the victims to say somehow this meant to happen to help us learn and grow. This is pure tragedy. This is not part of the plan. This is agency gone awry or whatever vocabulary that could be used. And it's just pure pain. But the work that you've done, the work and grace from the Fancher Baker descendants is remarkable, but it's a template. And that's why I'm so moved listening to the, your story and want to read the book is it's a template that's so needed right now in our very vitriol, um, polarized community. And what we need to do to move forward is the same human family. We as Latter-day Saints have this doctrine that we're all spirit children of the same heavenly parents. And if we keep that in mind, it maybe helps us see other people the way we should see them. We all voted for the same plan in the pre-earth life, and we're all here with the same heavenly parents. And you two obviously understand that. Any last thoughts? I have a hard time stopping podcast listeners, as you know, because I just, it's hard for me to stop. <laughs> but any last thoughts either of you'd like to share? I would simply say, the truth will make you free. Read what we have written. I'm not saying you have to buy the books. I'm sure libraries will be full of them. But read the book and be made free thereby. Yeah, and I would just say, don't be afraid of history. Um, just be willing to face it. And it. As we've said it again and again, none of us today are responsible for what happened. We are just responsible for what we do with what happened. And we can learn from history and have it make us better people, read to lead to better relationships with people who are different from us and, and create a better future for our children. Um, listeners will link in the show notes to um, three things. Your first book that you mentioned, the most recent book, um, Vengeance is Mine. We'll also add this email address that Barbara mentioned, um, MMM at Reconcile. MMM uh, sorry, Reconcile. Sorry, no, just, just MMM Reconciliation at gmail.com. All right. We'll get it right in the show notes, but Barbara Brown. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm thinking of my older brother right now who's written a book called, I don't want to shift gears, uh, written a, he's a historian, University of Oregon, has written a book called Surviving Genocide. And is pretty sobering book talking about the history of Native Americans. And I'm not trying to shift the focus to read his book, but these sort of types of books are really important for us to understand our history of Americans and as Latter-day Saints, because I think that helps us do better and not make the same mistakes and be able to reconcile as we own our history. Richard, so, I'm really glad you brought that up because really quickly, um, this is a horrific massacre. There were many more horrific large-scale massacres of Native Americans in our country, including in 1863, one called the Bear River Massacre yes. of Shoshone people by U.S. troops uh, in what was Utah Territory at the time. It's now Idaho. But we need to recognize this is not just one massacre that happened to this group of people. This is primarily happened to Native American people, and we need to remember them as well. So I'm glad to hear about your brother's book. Tell our listeners about Darren Perry, Barbara. Just introduce Darren Perry, if you want to, um, and his role uh, with um, reconciliation, understanding that. Sure. Um, Darren Perry is a friend of ours. He is a direct descendant of one of the chiefs, uh, Sagwich, who was at, uh, who survived the Bear River Massacre. Um, Darren is Shoshone. His 
grandmother, May Timbimbu Perry, was the historian of the Bear River Massacre. So what Juanita Brooks did for the Mountain Meadows Massacre, May Timbimbu Perry did for the Bear River Massacre. Darren has made it his life's mission to continue his grandmother's legacy of sharing that story wherever he can. Um, and so uh, we talk about the Bear River Massacre in our book as That's well. Great. Um, thank you for letting our listeners know about Darren Perry. Darren Perry was my second missionary companion. Um, You're kidding he, he me. Was, wow. What a, what a small world. <laughs> and that is a small world um, as we served in England. And I didn't know any of this about Darren until the last five or 10 years. And what a remarkable man he is. And all three of you are doing good work. So um, thank you, Barbara Jones-Brown, Richard E. Turley. And this is Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.